Welcome to Data Dialogues. Each Data Dialogue is a three-part conversation. The first two segments individually highlight a person working with environmental data that acts as a starting place for our group conversation with both guests. By talking through who's using what kinds of data and how, we're working to personalize the landscape that environmental data is sitting in so that it can be more accessible and useful to everyone. I'm your host, Angela Eaton. I'm so glad to be speaking with Jill Habig. Jill is an attorney focusing on public law and affirmative litigation. She founded Public Rights Project, a nonprofit that empowers state, local, and tribal governments to fight for civil rights by providing the talent and resources to proactively enforce residents' legal rights. Welcome to Data Dialogues, Jill. Hi, Angela. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it's really great to reconnect. Um, first, I would like to know, would you tell me about a favorite place of yours outdoors? For me, I think Lake Merritt in Oakland is just such a treasured local spot. It's this beautiful lake in the center of downtown Oakland that is a, almost exactly a 5K around. And there is a beautiful walking path right around the lake. There are restaurants with you know decks and outdoor views of the lake, little strung lights just lining the lake at night so that it looks even more beautiful. Yeah. The outdoor barbecues on the weekends. It's just kind of a community gathering spot. Uh, great people watching place. You know, you can do anything at the lake. It's great. I love that. Well, uh, how does this connect you to your work, do you think? Or does it? My work is really about making government more accountable and responsive to communities. And we think about that through the lens of civil rights and people's legal rights. You know, we think about economic justice, environmental justice, but really at its core, it's about what are, what are communities getting from their government? Do they feel like their government is protecting their rights? And how are, how is government thinking about their own accountability to community? Are they in conversation with community on a regular basis to actually know what what the community needs and wants from their government. So a community gathering place like Lake Merritt is really emblematic of that relationship between government and community, I think. But it's also a piece of um, public infrastructure, a public green space. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about your work, you have a lot of experience promoting infrastructure and promoting community voice within infrastructure. And I'm wondering if you could just dive into that just a tiny little bit. Yeah. So um, one example. So I, I've worked, I've spent most of my career working in state and local government, specifically working in agencies that are charged with enforcing people's rights in California. So I've worked in the California Attorney General's office. I've worked in San Francisco in the city attorney's office. And one of the biggest pieces of infrastructure that I've come across in that time is the set of online and other and offline systems for communicating between uh, government and and community. So the, we think about when a law enforcement agency or a prosecutor's office, like the attorney general's office, when they want to hear from the community about problems that that community members are having, whether it's, you know, you might have been scammed by a business or you might be a worker whose employer has discriminated against you or something like that. Currently, the main infrastructure that state and local governments have to hear from community members about problems like that is a complaint system, 
right? You're familiar with this in the environmental context, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> so fill out a complaint form, send it in online. Sometimes it may still be, you know, a PDF that you have to download and fax into your government office. And these systems and this current infrastructure is so outdated for modern life and often really inequitable because you think about who complains to their government, right? It's people who feel entitled to help from government. It's people who in our, you know, in the infrastructure I work with, people who understand that their problem is a legal one and that there is actually legal help that could help them resolve their problem. It's people who know where to look, who know how to access the right agency of government, uh, you know, who know what their city attorney or their attorney general's office does. Um, and then people who have the time and the language access skills to actually, you know, fill out and submit that complaint without fear. And th without fear, I know that um, sometimes that has to do with anonymity. Yes. And so how do you, you know, how does that, I'm sure that works as part of what you're talking about, whether or not it's a public document, a public complaint or not a public complaint. Yes. Yes. I've worked in both systems. Sometimes in certain cases, complaints can be anonymous. Um, in other cases, though, I've seen agencies that still ask for very personal information, social security number sometimes, and don't make clear that some of that information is optional. Is that is that meant to be a deterrent or is that what is the purpose of over asking? Oh, I think in most cases, it's not meant to be a deterrent. It's uh, it's intended to be able to get information that you can then verify if you need to actually go to court with those documents, or if you need to follow up with somebody as a potential witness or something like that. But it's it's one of those situations where the from the government side, they're thinking about every piece of information they might need. <laughs> not not they're not thinking about the user experience and the community experience of why somebody may not want to provide all of that information up front. And so there's a lot of disconnect, I think, often between the the government offices and the community members who may want to access help from government but may not feel comfortable sharing all of that information. Sure. That seems to me to be a trust disconnect. Yes. Right? Because I I see that, you know, from your description, there's a definite reason why government might want something like that. But from the community perspective, giving that information feels pretty vulnerable mm -hmm. and doesn't feel like their initial request was actually listened to. So what then might be a way to get both parties what they need. I think there's a lot of room for removing some of the legalese <laughs> from these complaint systems to make people feel more comfortable and to be clear about what you actually need versus what you might need later but don't need initially in order to have somebody respond to that complaint or at least start to take action about it. Um, another thing that we've been thinking about a lot at Public Rights Project is how can government actually build better structures to proactively reach community and not put so much burden on individual community members to complain to government before government takes action. So we've actually started, for example, 
we've run web ads to find workers who have been victims of harassment or wage theft or you know other problems like that and we reach them where they are online and you know on Craigslist or other places where they're already looking for work you can reach much different people if you actually think about proactive outreach than if you just wait for individual community members to take on that burden of of finding you and the government. There was a woman named Barbara Johnson in West Oakland who was facing a huge amount of local pollution caused by a company that was basically incinerating and and, um, compacting concrete and other dust and spewing dust into her neighborhood. She was getting sick. Her grandchildren were getting sick. She couldn't open her windows. She was able to actually do outreach with to the city attorney in Oakland. Um, and they were able to use evidence that she had collected videos, photos, et cetera, by working with her directly and getting information from her that ended up, you know, helping to shut down the company and 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 change change the lives of folks in that neighborhood. So not just create a cleaner environment for her community, but change the behavior of the of the actor, of the yes. environmental bad actor. Yes. So how did how did she provide the proof that yeah. that would be respected by the government? So um, and this is another case of, you know, someone she went through a, a bunch of different agencies trying to figure out the right place to go to help her family and ultimately found uh, a couple of attorneys in the city attorney's office who were really interested in environmental justice. I believe the soil samples were actually done by government agencies at the city's request. Um, But then she ended up supplementing that evidence with videos of the company still operating in violation of a court order, uh, photos of the dust, you know, other documentation of the actual problems that were being created because she lived in that neighborhood and could see the company operating across the street at all hours of the day and night, whereas other, you know, other government employees could only come in and out of the neighborhood at certain specific times. And so she was able to provide data of a very different quality and at any particular point in time that the the government just wasn't able to do. How is that different from a complaint system that's already in place? Like, aren't, isn't that the complaint system that should be in place or is in place for environmental infractions? There's a role for a complaint system that folks like Barbara Johnson can use. It requires a government that's actually willing to listen and who can contribute their own resources to support the community members. And then I think it requires some more some proactive infrastructure as well because we have to be aware of the fact that not every community is going to not every community member can be a Barbara Johnson right? Um, nor should we expect them to. We, we can't, we shouldn't create a system in which every community ha- member has to be extraordinary in order to access their rights. Has this thing that you're talking about yielded more in terms of trust or, or a facility in, in coordinating between communities and the government? Can you, can you give us any example of that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I actually do think there's a huge potential for this work. Uh, We're still at early stages, but I think it has the potential to really create different bonds of trust between government and community. So I'll give a couple different examples. One of the ways that we've seen government actually try to bridge that gap rather than just assuming that they can fix the trust gap on their own. Um, We've seen a lot of our government partners start to build relationships with community-based organizations that have that trust and are in the community. We had in Oakland um, a group of workers that were facing abuse from a local Quality Inn. And the Quality Inn is a hotel chain. Yes, yes. Right. And there was a group of workers, all Latina immigrants, who had been forced to work off the clock without breaks, no sick leave, no protective equipment in these in their hotel rooms. And they went to Centro Legal de la Raza. They didn't go to the city government because they didn't either know that the city government could help or didn't trust the city government. Centro Legal then reached out to the city attorney's office. And the city attorney's office had a, had, had a relationship with Central Legal. They'd done other cases before. And so in partnership, the city attorney's office and Central Legal were able to file a case against Quality Inn together. Central Legal was able to help get the workers the back pay that they were owed, uh, you know, and take care of their interests. And the city was able to take care of its interests by forcing Quality Inn to change their practices across the board. And so that kind of arrangement where you actually build long-term relationships between the city government or the state government community-based organizations that work in partnership with their community, and then the individual community members, I think can yield much better long-term results on whether it's workers' rights or environmental justice or or other issues than for the government, again, to remain passive. It would be interesting if there were more ways to accept the information that communities are already sharing. Yes. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that happening already or Mm. how that could happen. Yeah. So we have seen some examples of this where we actually teach some of the um, attorneys in our network to do uh, social media research to look on subreddits, to look at um, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, to search for information about what community members are already complaining about to each other, um, rather than waiting again passively for community members to use the right complaint channel to to reach government. There is unfortunately, you know, I think I'm sure you've seen this in the environmental context with regulation. There's a lot of bias towards official, quote unquote, official sources of data (laughs) um, and a lot of aversion to these kinds of informal sources of data. And so I think we're starting to make some progress with our government partners to be able to accept that kind of informal data. I work with lawyers, so everyone's always worried about what's going to be admissible in court, what what kind of evidence is going to stand up to challenge. But I think what people miss with that kind of standard is that informal data can actually tell you where you need to point your resources as government. You know, government has a limited amount of resources. They can't they can't look at every single problem. And data from the community, even if you can't use it later in a formal court case, you can use it to identify where you should be 
trying to develop that more formal evidence, right? And so um, a, a colleague of mine talks about this as small batch artisanal data. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> you know, you don't need some major formal study in order to know, oh, we should be looking at this company instead of that company. Or maybe we should direct more resources to this neighborhood in, in West Oakland where Barbara Johnson is living as opposed to, you know, another neighborhood. And so if you think about using those informal sources of data, not to resolve an issue, but to open an issue, <laughs> to get you to give give an agency an idea of where they should be looking to collect more formal information. I think that's where community data can have a huge impact on rights enforcement. Okay. So I'm going to turn now to our conversation partner. Natasha Udagama is our uh, data dialogue conversation partner. And I'm really excited about this because what Natasha does is she assists communities in their agency of collecting data and using science and scientists in order to work with government. And then you also do that like looking at it from the, the legal perspective with the legal lens. And I'm wondering if you have any sparking thoughts for Natasha. Yes, I, I'm excited to talk to Natasha. I would love to hear from her what was a, what was a light bulb moment in terms of any of the governments and communities she's worked with when they were able to identify new ways of sharing data with each other. I think there's so much, um, you can talk about the problems, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about them today, about problems between government and community. So I'm really interested in hearing from her, when are, where were those light bulb moments? What has worked well? And what can other communities and government agencies learn from those examples? I'm sure she has a lot to say about that. So what are ways that we can follow you online or that we can follow any of the projects that you work with at Public Rights Project or some of the ones that you've mentioned? Yes, great. So you can follow me on Twitter at J.E. Habig, uh, H-A-B-I-G. You can follow Public Rights Project. Our website is publicrightsproject.org. We're on Twitter as at public underscore rights. And we just launched a new online magazine on Medium. So you can find us at Medium slash Public Rights Project. I really appreciate talking with you today. I can't wait for our conversation with Natasha. I'm really looking forward to it. See you then. All right. Thank you. This segment is one of a three-part conversation series. To listen to Natasha Udagama's individual conversation with me, or to hear our group dialogue with Jill and Natasha, please visit us wherever you listen to your podcasts or at openenvironmentaldata.org. To read a transcript of this episode and to access resources mentioned throughout the show, please take a look at our show notes, which you can find in the caption for this episode or at openenvironmentaldata.org. This podcast was created by Emma Grimm, Angela Eaton, Michelle Cherupka, Shannon Dosmegan, Amelia Williams, and Katie Hoberling, with music by The Westerlies. Data Dialogues is supported by the Open Environmental Data Project, which is funded by the Shuttleworth Foundation.